Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Today's guest, Trent Colbert, is probably the youngest we've ever had on the Quillette Podcast. He's a second-year student at Yale Law School in New Haven, Connecticut, which happens to be my own alma mater, but that's not why I'm having him on the show. It's because he tried to throw a party. You see, a few months ago, Colbert sent out an email inviting friends to a Yale Law School party being jointly organized in his modest apartment by the Native American Law Students Association and the Federalist Society, a conservative group. In his lighthearted email, Colbert referred to his student apartment as a trap house, a slang term for a place where you can buy drugs. Now, needless to say, Colbert didn't get in trouble for playfully suggesting that partygoers could buy drugs. Instead, he was accused of racist language by a handful of fellow students who interpreted the reference to drugs as a slap at black urban culture. For his part, Colbert denied that he had any racist intent and wanted to meet to discuss the issue with anyone who was offended. But that wasn't good enough for Yale Law School's administrators, who quickly mobilized into racism response mode. Colbert was summoned into a slew of meetings with administrators, in which it was ominously suggested that he needed to make a public apology. It was also suggested by school administrators that if Colbert did not make a public apology, the school would send out a mass email to students shaming Colbert, which in fact they did, even if they didn't cite him by name in that message. Other implicit threats that school administrators dangled in front of Colbert were the possibility of his reputation in the legal community being compromised, him becoming a pariah within his class, and even the legal press being made aware by persons unknown about his disgrace. And how do we know all this? Because as Aaron Sabarium of the Washington Free Beacon has reported, Colbert taped the meetings. Here, for example, are some excerpts from a September 16 meeting that Colbert had with Yale Law Diversity Director Yassine Eldick and Associate Dean Ellen Cosgrove. Those are going to be the male and female voices you hear, respectively. Now, this audio is more than six minutes long, but I included it here in advance of my interview with Colbert, which immediately follows, because it's astounding stuff. Especially the part where Eldick offers to write Colbert's apology for him. And then there's the part where the duo reject Colbert's offer of face-to-face meetings with complaining students because that would make their office of student affairs look like a, quote, ineffective source of resolution, end quote. Let's have a listen. Nipping things in the bud is always a good, <laughs> a good thing to do. Yeah. Part of the reason why I said, you know, we've gotten two more messages is just, you know, we got the first one at like nine something this morning and, and shortly after that, you know, reached out to you. But they're sort of coming and in our experience, again, every situation can be different, but, but it tends to be that these things just amplify, you know, yeah. over time and, and people, right? So I, I, for, for your sake as well as the community's sake, I think kind of addressing this um, quickly is important. Mm. I'd rather just be like one-on-one thing. If they like to talk to me, they can. Yeah. And keep it from having like a publishable statement. 
So I don't want to put the onus on black students to reach out to you to talk more. I also don't want to make our office look like an ineffective source of resolution because we're just writing to students and telling them, he's so sorry, except our expression of his apology on your behalf because it looks almost mm. as if like we've all just sort of folded into each other yeah. and it erases your individuality and your mm. agency in this. And you want this to go away. But also I think that like you as a person want some character driven rehabilitation. And I think the best way for that to happen would be an email where you just explicitly accepted some responsibility and, and just apologize. I, I can't mm. imagine that that would, that that would do anything other than make you look like a thoughtful, reasonable, kind person. Mm. And that is more likely to, to have this go away, which is clearly what you want, um, than, than I think any other alternative. Part of what I also worry about is this lingering over your your own reputation as a person, not just here, but when you leave. Um, and it's just something to think about. You mm-hmm. know, like the legal community is a small one. Um, you know, your classmates are your peers. And, and I don't want you to be in an echo chamber where people make you think that you did nothing wrong. It's not, this isn't a conversation about whether you did anything wrong. It's mm-hmm. about language that was used that was triggering and you're just trying to like take responsibility for managing through some of the tension related to that and i i think that's just the responsible way forward okay so that's just like that's my advice to you Mm -hmm. um as sort of a mentor to a student Uh um and i'm i'm happy to help you if you're so exhausted and tired and sort of feeling down because of this, I'm happy to help. I mean, it's part of my role. I'm happy to help you. I'm happy to help draft, you know, the first iteration of this. And then you can decide what feels the most pure to you. I'm not trying to tell you to do this. And and so you're off on your own. I want to help give you guidance and nurture Mm -hmm. your social and intellectual development here as a student um it's not an admission of guilt and i was very clear in the rep meeting (laughs) this isn't adjudicatory um and this isn't going beyond the community of the school but i actually do think that the community of the school should be our our main priority when we think about why we motivate ourselves to act and to remediate issues as they come up I didn't need to catch up. Uh, I'm just going to say, you know, some students have asked us to say something yeah. as an institution. That was the point I was going to make. There's, there's been this. multiple letters have said the law school should, should take a stand. And um, again, I think we're always looking for ways to not, um, not ratchet things up unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, as you see, said to, to sort of address it in a way that, that's clean and that's respectful to the, to the needs of the students who brought the, uh, the complaints to us. Uh, I want you to take time so that you can uh, be comfortable with the decision you reach 
at the same time, I think I just do know in a situation like this, people start to escalate, and the more it escalates, the more rigid people might get in terms of what expectations are. You know, I think there is room right now for forgiveness. I don't think the people that wrote to us want to be carceral with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, I think it raises questions for some students about like the values of this community and, and, and where does the law school align its values, given some of the, you know, the, 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 the underlying context to the words that you use. Um, and I do want so much for your time at the law school to, to be pleasant. I want you to be able to continue to move between different realms. Like, I know you are on the Petsoft board and you're involved with the Republican organ group. And um, I think it's really an attempt to understand why it is that someone would write an email that looks like it's inviting others to make a mockery of black people. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's one really simple, easy way of thinking about it, it would be that. Okay. And I'm at the ready to help you. If you you want to put an email together, I can send it out to the students. So since that free Beacon report came out a few months ago, the roles have reversed a little bit because... The administrators are very much on the defensive. They are completely embarrassed by the recordings you made. A few days ago, the dean at Yale Law School sent around something that kind of sounded like an apology. Was it? It kind of sounded like an apology, but it was one of those ones where it's like, sorry that there was an impression of bias. I'm pretty sure most people would say like there was more than an impression of bias given the audio that we were all able able to hear. And that's the very end she was talking about commission to, among other things, set up norms regarding secretly recorded conversations and sharing correspondence without permission. I also saw that Yale Law School professor Akhil Amar, who's a famous constitutional law prof and a well-known author, he came out in your defense. Have any other professors done likewise? I saw an article about Roberta Romano, and she was supportive of me and how she didn't appreciate the way that the administration is handling the whole situation. I think those are the main two that I've heard about talking publicly about me. At one point in this process, and I think this is maybe the most shocking part of it, the school administration sent out an email to the entire second year class, of which you're part, essentially shaming you. And you must have got that message in your inbox too, because you're part of that class. Can you tell us a little bit about your reaction when you saw that? I honestly, I was, I was shocked. Because I was actually on the phone with the administrators while that email was sent out to the whole class. They were telling me that they just needed to put out a statement that was acknowledging that they were, had received complaints. So I thought it was going to be something like, we've heard reports recently concerning and a recent email that caused offense. We've had conversations with the author and resolved the issue. Instead, it was what I assume you've seen that. Uh, there was a, an email, an invitation sent out with racist and pejorative language. We condemn this in the strongest possible term. That language makes it sound like you said something genuinely horrifying, like you were throwing around the N-word or something like that. Yeah. Again, I was on the phone with them, and they were saying, like, there's no judgment here. We're not condemning you. We're just going to acknowledge that we received reports, that we received complaints, and we're acknowledging that. Like, okay. And I got on the phone, I see this email five minutes earlier, and a bunch of people texting me about it. That was interesting. I didn't like how they characterized my email, 
And especially in the context of somewhat recent events, when last semester we did have someone emailing the N-word, among other things, and threatening students. The person had been a student, but was no longer. They were very uh, cagey about what to say about this person. Like, all they would say is that we have reason to believe that this person is not in Connecticut right now. And yet, it's my party invitation that's condemned in the, quote, strongest possible term. So they think that it's at least as bad. Probably worse, apparently, by what they say. Did your party take place? Not in the way that it was set out in the email. We decided that we should probably go somewhere else because the screenshot email did have my address on it. Right. We didn't want to have like some conflict happen or anything like that. So we thought it'd be good to just say, go somewhere else. And also the Native American Association didn't want to take part in the event anymore. So it was just a Fed thought constitution day thing. One of the more unsettling aspects of this is that at one point, somebody, I think it's the diversity director or something, tells you that an exacerbating factor in the school's view is that the party was being done in conjunction with the Federalist Society, which, of course, is a conservative-leaning student group. Yeah. And the reason it's unsettling is it suggests that the school is motivated in part by political factors. Yeah, I would say it's the mainstream conservative legal a philosophy group that really exists in the United States. So to have the administrator saying that my email of association of FedSoc is triggering to students who believe that the Federal Society is oppressive to the Black community and the LGBTQIA community, among others, it's not really a, a description of the Federal Society that I, certainly not one that I stand by. I don't think it's one that the school should be standing by either. They were literally saying it was a blackface party. I'm sorry, they actually used the term blackface? Yeah. And they were saying that the term trap house brings to light frat boys in the South listening to trap music and putting charcoal on their faces. Therefore, it's subjectively a party about black mockery, which is also something that I, I don't agree with and something that they thought that the Federal Society had something to do with. I had heard that they had talked to like the FedSoc president about this. And they had said that they thought that he was taking advantage of like a student of color with a backyard and saying that he is a cishet white man wanted to have some fun. So he found a person of color with a backyard and had him send an email for a costume party where it wouldn't be frowned upon for people to dress in blackface and dance to trap music. So effectively, the accusation, at least originally, or at least the suspicion, was this conservative group, the Federalist Society, was using you as a sort of front man to redwash their white conservative racist party. Is that right? That's how I interpreted that when I, when I heard about that. You seem really calm now that I'm interviewing you, but there must have been a point in this process when you were freaking out. <laughs> like, was there any point when you were tempted to just say, you know, put your prescripted apology in front of me, I'll sign it? Because... <laughs> they did write out an apology for you. I mean, they did the work, right? It was really stressful for a lot of this. I had a lot of long nights that I had to like, be preparing for these meetings, especially at the start of this. I, when I got an email from discrimination harassment resource coordinators, there were troubling complaints that they needed me to come in for a meeting. It felt like there was a chance they were going to try to like expel me or something. So I had to like, brush up on the rules to make sure like there isn't anything they could try to like stick me on. Then I had to, of course, brush up on the local laws with respect to recording conversations. I didn't, wouldn't want to get in trouble with that either. Is Connecticut a so-called one-party state for, for those purposes? Yeah, you're the one-party state for any uh, in-person meeting. It doesn't seem like I'm in any trouble with that. 
Yeah, although one of the weirdest subplots here is that in this non-apology they sent out, they suggested that they're actually going to look into taking measures to prevent exactly this kind of recording of these meetings, which <laughs> would actually reduce accountability. That's kind of how I interpret it, because I know a lot of these meetings I've been having, I've actually had just one meeting, but I remember it was on Zoom and he was with this committee and he took like a pause and said that since on Zoom talked about Connecticut state law about how recordings over the telephone and Zoom would be analogous to that aren't allowed and are criminally liable. Like, okay, it does seem like there's an effort to prevent things like this from being publicly known. And I think that's troubling because I think a lot of this story would have never actually seen the light of day if the recordings didn't exist to corroborate everything. People throw around the word Kafka-esque quite a bit, but there's something very specifically Kafka-esque about your situation. I'm thinking in particular of the book, The Trial, where you've got this protagonist who's in this incredibly complex legal proceeding, but no one will ever quite tell him what the charges against him are. And there's something about that which reminds me of your case, because whenever you tried to pin down the Yale administrators about what are you charging me with, they wouldn't go into specifics, and they'd make these implicit threats and use scary language. But again, whenever you tried to pin them down, they'd retreat to vagaries. Did they ever tell you specifically, this is an adversarial process, you are being accused of this, here are the consequences, or was it just this manipulative but vaguely worded process that was designed to pressure you into a forced confession? They never showed me the complaints that were against me. All I know is that there were nine complaints by the time I got to my meeting the next afternoon after the email went out. They kept telling me this whole thing is an informal process. But also at the same time, when I didn't want to send out a public apology, they started talking about my reputation and how the legal community is a small one and that there's going to be a bar I'm going to have to take at some point. So I really need to make sure there's a 360 view. And then when I asked for clarification about the bar later on, they just said that, oh, yeah, there's nothing that we see about bringing this to the bar, at least not yet. And when I asked for detail on that, they just said, it depends on how all this resolves. And then some people didn't like my response in our class forum when I uh, addressed this issue to the class. They actually wrote out an apology for you to put your name to. Were you tempted at all to put your name to that and just say, look, enough, you know, these are all very powerful people and I don't want to ruin my career over this? There, there was a part of me that felt like that there's a possibility that this might make things go away quicker. But at the same time, there was this feeling of this whole thing is really, really yucky was the word I was thinking of. And I didn't feel comfortable putting my name to something that wasn't for me and not something I believe in. Like the administrator said, the legal community is a small one. Wouldn't want this to have a lasting effect on my reputation. And the way to have a lasting effect on my reputation is to have my name on something admitting to something heinous that I didn't do. So if I ever try to deny it in the future, they'll pull that up and say, well, you didn't feel that way and back when it was happening. So I think you're just trying to cover yourself now. You're ever lying then or now, and it makes more sense for you to lie now. What's so troubling about that is that anybody who knows anything about prosecutorial overreach or bullying tactics knows that one thing they do is, is they throw the book at you and then try and get an unsophisticated defendant or a defendant without a lot of resources for self-defense or who's relying on legal aid or whatnot to accept a plea bargain 
does, does it make you a little bit more cynical now about going into criminal procedure class and, and being lectured often from a social justice perspective about how terrible these these things are but some version of that kind of happened to you i see it a little bit especially with the idea that there's a lot more that we can do but we're just doing a smaller thing there are a lot of stakeholders involved i don't have to do my job this way i want to i think that's a direct quote and when i was talking about how my uh, email is characterizing the the message to the entire second year class the administrator was telling me like, well, we didn't use your name. We didn't even say the emails from a student, even though I think everyone who got that email knew exactly what it was about. And then the administrator wanted to say like, yeah, we wouldn't want this going to the wall, which is the school-wide listserv, or like to various media outlets, like above the law or law.com. So it was really putting my notice that there is a, a distinct possibility that if I don't comply with saying whatever, apologies being asked of me to sign on to, that someone else is going to put some kind of hit piece out on me and actually try to get rid of my reputation. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette podcast. This trap house party invitation you sent, it's not crazy to think that somebody would be offended by that. Maybe the best way to deal with that would be for you as a person to go and talk to these people on an individual level. You suggested that. The administrators seem cool to that idea because then they wouldn't be providing a solution. There seemed to be this bureaucratic mechanism or built-in incentive for them that they needed to be the people resolving this. They wouldn't want to look like an ineffective source of resolution. They wanted to be the source of resolution, even if it meant there would be less resolution as a result. Well, this gets us to a completely separate story. It has nothing to do with your story, at least not in any direct way, but there was a report a few weeks ago about how Yale now has something like 5,000 administrators and managers. And all of them, not just the ones who work in the diversity office, they all have to justify their salaries. And what do that many administrators do all day? And maybe this dilatory process that you got subjected to, was this glut of personnel part of the problem? It feels like that to an extent, especially with them saying they want to be an effective source of resolution. It's kind of funny that the office is supposed to be this thing, engaging in these tough dialogues or whatever, talking about how we're committed to having difficult conversations. 
But as soon as there's a difficult conversation about them, when my story goes out into the ether, nothing's said. The office still hasn't said anything. Only the dean herself has said stuff. I thought it feels a little, little hypocritical, I guess. What is the state of education at Yale Law School now? Is it mostly virtual or is it in-class education? Uh, we have in-class education. It was hybrid last year, but now all my classes are in person. Is it awkward when you walk through the halls? Uh, it's a little bit weird. I think more generally, it's weird in that I see people looking and pointing at me sometimes. I haven't really been confronted over this at all. I don't want to say it's an internet thing, but it feels like there's less conflict on the ground, at least relative to the number of times I've been personally denounced by affinity groups on the wall. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? I'm always interested to hear about the biographical details of the people who self-select to stand up for principle in this way. So for my background, I'm from the West Coast. I'm from the Seattle area. I grew up in a pretty Christian family, at least since I was, I was a kid, we were converted. And I grew up, went to like Christian schools growing up through middle school and high school. But my faith's always been pretty important to me. I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian. Among other things, that's one of the reasons, I guess, why I think that it's important to not to submit to things that you know are wrong. But as an aside, after high school, I went to undergrad at Amherst College over in Western Massachusetts. My first time living on the East Coast because I had been in the Seattle area all my life up to that point. It was very different. I had gone to very small schools growing up. My high school graduating class was like 25 people, and only 15 of them or so had been actually in the school the whole time. Amherst College, though a small liberal arts college, was very big compared to what I was used to. We had 450 people in our, our graduating class. But I wouldn't be able to see them at graduation because, funny enough, because I graduated in 2020, the COVID year, our in-person graduation doesn't actually happen until the coming June. And before law school, I didn't really do anything because I went straight through, because I'm a second year now, the summer was COVID summer. So I was pretty much in lockdown with my mom for a few months there. I think my mom's influence is also a part of why I, I didn't want to back down on my morals and sign on to something I didn't believe in. Because she used to be a teacher. She had a, a somewhat similar uh, experience where there was a student who uh, I guess didn't like a grade that she that she gave out, complained about it and tried to make her apologize for something. I, she stood her ground. She wouldn't apologize for something that she knew wasn't something that was wrong. That example meant a lot to me. Since this whole story broke, have you heard from any other students, either at your own school or elsewhere, who are grappling with their own kind of similar situation and maybe they're trying to figure out what to do? Yeah, I've, I've actually gotten a few emails or LinkedIn messages from different people who either have gone through something similar or are currently going through something similar. They usually don't ask for advice, but they, they usually say something along the lines of that they appreciate what I'm doing and they're going through something similar so they understand what's going on. You talk to the media about your story, which not everybody would do in your position. And, and by the way, I think the Free Beacon did an amazing job in breaking your story. But are you worried that you will become a kind of mascot for conservative free speechers who try to leverage your case to advance their side of the culture war? I think it's definitely possible that people are going to try to turn this into like a culture wars thing, say that this is like students on campus trying to cancel each other. Though, honestly, I think I don't even think the students on campus were necessarily trying to cancel me. I think the story starts and ends with the administration and how they were 
threatening my legal career. Other students criticizing something that I say. If anything, it's something you're supposed to expect when you go to one of these law schools. During the whole process, administrators kept suggesting there'd be the equivalent of a note in your file if you didn't sign the apology they'd prepared. Now that what the administration has done has been aired in public and has been widely criticized, is there any indication that there will be a note in their file, as it were, any kind of repercussions? I've actually been pretty in the dark for this whole process. I know there was an email sent out like October 18th from Dean Gherkin saying that there would be some kind of investigation into what happened by led by a commission headed by uh, Deputy Dean Ian Ayers. I had one meeting with them that went for about an hour, but other than that, I haven't been involved with anything. Unfortunately, I'm actually not sure what's going on. It's, nothing was really retracted. The closest that the dean got was saying that the email sent to the entire class didn't strike the appropriate balance. There wasn't any apology. The only material effect that I've seen from that email is that committee being created to ostensibly investigate students recording conversations that demonstrate administrative overreach rather than preventing the administrative overreach. So it doesn't really feel like the administration's apologizing. It feels kind of like it's doubling down. Trent Colbert, thanks for joining the Quillette podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.